Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go, and newcomers to this series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 4, Episode 21, When the Levee Breaks. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing addiction. If that's not something you want to hear us discuss, you can skip this episode either for now or entirely. We don't mind. We just want you to feel safe and take care of yourself. Thank you. I can't believe there is only one episode of the season left. We had a conversation on Discord the other day, but it's basically like this season was like a really, 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 really slow but enjoyable ride. Almost like a roller coaster where you don't realize it's going upwards because it's such a such a shallow angle. And then suddenly it's like, oh, that's an 89 degree drop for like 30 odd miles. This one is no exception. Everything is just coming into into play now. (laughs) The the only difficult part is I want to watch the next episode and finish the season, but I have to wait till tomorrow night to watch it live with everybody else. Exactly. Yes, please. For now, are we ready for the recap? Count me down. Three, two, one, go. As we ended off last week's episode, Sam is just locked in that little, like, demon-proof bunker in Bobby's basement, and it's just essentially Sam versus literally his inner demons, which is a weird thing to say now that I think about it, because it could be taken both ways. I digress. And then Dean and Bobby kind of reeling with these facts, and then Dean basically sells his soul to the angels and offers to be their sucker, as it's put by Bobby so politely. And then Cass lets Dean out. What the, What was that plan? And then Anna gets abducted. And Cass is like full like douche mode this week. Damn. But Sam ends up back with Ruby, gets his demon blood fixed back up, thinks he can save the day, learns about Lilith's weird baby eating chef. And then Sam and Dean confront in the hotel, ultimate fight. Ah, and <laughs> the end. <laughs> There's too much nuance for this. I can't recap it without like going into incredibly niche details, which we'll get into. But I really wish that our our listeners could have had a like a video of you in this moment because it was just pure chaos on your face. Picture Beaker from the Muppets in any bit he's ever been in, with the arms flailing and like smoke and fire somewhere. That's that's pretty much what you missed. All right, let's head right on over into the long game so that we can move forward with this episode. Okay, so we get a mention of Rufus and we get another glimpse at like his relationship with Bobby. Yeah, that was um I, I was taken aback by how rough he was with him. Like I know the relationship is strained. I feel like if you asked me to describe that relationship before this episode, it would have been Rufus is kind of an ass and Bobby puts up with him. But like I never would have expected Bobby to be like screw you and hang up kind of thing. Well, I mean, we know that the last time that he spoke with John, I can't remember. I think it was him who pulled a shotgun on him and told him not to come back or something like that. So we know that Bobby has uh, some pretty excellent boundaries. But basically, he says he knows what he did. Like, I love the kind of lore building that gives us of like there's there's a relationship 
between Bobby and Rufus outside of the show, there's a Bobby we don't see all the time. I want to know more. I don't expect we'll ever find out what this he knows what he did is. And that's fine, actually. I guess this is those things that I kind of see like for the fans to kind of explore on our own kind of thing. We also have Vision Mary, who mentions that she was raised a hunter from a long line, quote unquote. And I mean, we know that it wasn't really Mary, but I think this bears highlighting. We'll get to the hallucinations because I think they're a really important part of this episode. But I feel like Mary was the most interesting of the hallucinations. There's a bit more clarification here of who can actually stop the apocalypse. So we understand that Sam could, but Cass tells us that consuming the amount of blood that it would take to kill Lilith would change Sam forever. We know that Dean can at the cost of, quote unquote, standing up and accepting his role. And it's not quite clear what that means in practicality in this episode. Uh, but Dean is very attracted to this if it means that Sam doesn't have to, to do the blood consuming. This episode tries to set up this like imbalance between the brothers of like, we each have our own way of tackling this end of the world thing and they're both equally okay. But like as much as angels in general and Cass in this episode are kind of big old dicks, Dean's plan seems a lot better. Like I'm sure there's some repercussions we're not getting yet, and I'm going to regret saying that down the road when we learn what it means to give yourself over entirely to the angels and God. But at the end of the day, I think I think I know we're we're diving a bit here, but I feel like it's a line that Dean says to Bobby is better to sell my soul to the angels than better that I trust angels than letting Sam trust demons. We know from everything that he's said about angels this season that he's certainly not happy about it. As much as there's a lot of gray area this week, I feel like in this moment, he's right. Now, purely to see your face as I say this, did you notice Dean's face when Cass asked him if he would follow God's orders as well as he followed John's? Ugh. Right. Pain. Pain. Pure pain. Pure, pure pain. Like, I know that deep down in some of these moments, and maybe I'm reading into it, but I still feel like there's a part of Cass that is like, I don't like what I'm doing, but I have to play my role in this game. And he's almost trying to convince Dean to not listen to him. That was his move. That was his attempt to go like, let me say something that will piss Dean off so much that he will decline the offer, which is secretly what I want him to do, even though it's against my orders. Okay, interesting. I hadn't really seen it that way. But you can tell that like... Cass is having all kinds of second thoughts because he's not happy about what happens to Anna either, even though he is basically the bait in this particular situation. What did they do to Cass to get him to play along so well this week? That's a really good question. Do you think we're going to find out before the end of the season? Oh, God, no. We'll find out next uh, next season. Next season? Yeah, next season. We'll, we'll learn more about uh, as Cass breaks free a bit more, hopefully. So Anna is taken away to heaven somewhere, and we don't know what happens with that, uh, but we can assume that it's probably not super great. Is this goodbye to Anna? Like, there is a part of me that legitimately feels that was her, like, send off to the series. Like, we're never going to see her again. I, I genuinely do not expect a return of Anna, let alone this season, this series. I could be wrong, and again, the advantage of Angels being much like the Doctor recastable in some senses sure they can bring her back for some plotline or some story or some one-off but like i genuinely felt like this could be like an end to anna 
Like it really depends on where the writers want to take it next season because it would be really easy to kind of like explain away her death or her imprisonment or whatever. We find out that there are not that many seals left. Just just two or three. Just two or three. And only Lilith can break the 66th seal. The way the seals were set up and kind of made this like weird MacGuffin for the season of just being like, here's a reason why these like... It's not just a regular haunting in this town. It's something that will ruin a seal and you have to go deal with it on top of it being a regular haunting. Like it helped tie the series together neatly in like this format. But I like that kind of very video gamey again. Like I said, with the seals initially, I do like this. We could do a whole episode just on the last five minutes of this particular episode. But I need to know before we head into the season finale, where do you stand right now, especially after like the big blowout at the end? Are you team Sam? Are you team Dean? And particularly, like, what do you think of Ruby? Is she helping or is she hurting? Cass doesn't trust what he's doing, which makes me feel like whatever Dean is doing on the side of the angels is going to be worse for him in the long run which is what Cass is trying to stop him. So while it might be the the better fix now, in the long run, it's going to hurt more. Whereas I think as much, and again, it's, it's information from angels, which seems like an unreliable source. The whole like, yeah, I know Sam could totally beat Lilith with enough blood, but like he'll never be the same. Just feels like an excuse. Like, yeah, sure. That is definitely like where it's going is like, he'd have to consume too much to be able to beat her. But hopefully he can consume enough, but retain his humanity. And with Ruby and Dean's help, he could do it. Something about the way Ruby acts in this episode, even when confronting Dean, I get this feeling that she really doesn't want to hurt him. Like when she says when she like has that moment with Sam saying like it, it hurts me that he doesn't trust you. And again, I know she's a demon and lying is their game, but like it felt so genuinely like. I really wish I could do this for you and not have him hate us for it. My gut, again, like that that's the gut. Then there's the like creative writing, writing for media thing where it's like, of course, she's going to betray them. Of course, Sam's going to push it too far. Even if Ruby says stop, he'll go, no, I can go a little further. And like, it's just it's going to backfire in some way. And I just it will be terrible and I can't wait. I will remind you that this season started with Dean saying, if I didn't know you, I would want to hunt you. And we're now at the point where Dean openly says, and I quote, it means it's not something you do. It's something you are. It means you're a monster. And so I suppose that at this point, we can only assume that the last episode of this season is going to be about hunting Sam. See, before you said those words, I expected they would like deal with Lilith next week. And then next season would be hunting Sam. Either way, the idea of Dean having to hunt Sam, and I know ultimately it'll be to capture him, not kill him. As much as it comes up this week that Dean is not strong enough. Dean is strong enough to do a lot of things. To kill his brother? No. I think he is strong enough not to kill him. And I think that that's really what matters. You know what? Yeah, I, much better wording. Thank you. We ready for story time? <laughs> yeah, let's go. So today our theme is addiction. 
And it's one of those where the root meaning of the word really doesn't represent what it means today. It comes from the Latin ad dicere, which means to say, and literally translated means assigned. So when someone was addicted to something, they were basically assigned to this particular thing or this task. In 16th century English, addict meant to be bound or devoted to someone or something. And today, addiction basically means like the factor condition of being physically or mentally dependent on a particular substance and unable to stop taking it without incurring uh, adverse effects. Now, I will also add that in this is a very general definition and that it's not only substances that you can be addicted to, but also to, to behaviors or actions. Just to go on an etymology nerd moment, I love that chain of like evolution it went through. And it, I mean, once you said it, like as much as the first one, to say, it kind of felt weird, like, oh, to say, but then like it kind of evolved in a way where it really makes sense where it is today. And like you can see each step. Well, one thing that I find really interesting about the very, the very, very like root meaning, which is to say, is like the power that's present in recognizing an addiction and to be able to talk about it, to say it. Nice little circle we've made there. Given that we're talking about addiction, I think it's safe to say we're going to start with Sam this week. All right. He's addicted to demon blood. Because there isn't really that much to uncover here, I sort of want to scratch at the stuff that surrounds it, and particularly his visions. Because it seems that like, as he's quote-unquote detoxing from the demon blood, he has visions of what I think are his worst fears. So Alistair's hell torture, disappointing his younger self, disappointing his mother, disappointing his brother, having evil basically imprinted inside him. And worst of all, he's terrified that using demon blood is the only way to bring about justice. And I think that this is really representative of why Sam got addicted to demon blood. Chuck said it made him feel strong. It made him feel in control at a time where his life was going off the rails completely. And it really links back to what I had very briefly mentioned last week about some conceptual models of addiction where you use something in order to cope with emotional pain. And this episode, I think, is really about how much pain Sam has been in this entire time, how much suffering he's been going through, and basically his way to cope with it was to use and abuse a substance that made him feel strong and in control. This really culminates in the moment when Bobby is holding the shotgun to Sam and he tells him that they're trying to help him. And then Sam says, then shoot. And we've seen Sam be reckless, but we haven't seen him be outright suicidal. And that was really, really hard to watch. It felt like a challenge. It really felt like I can't put words on it. It really says something about the relationship between Sam and Dean and Bobby, the way he almost acts like I me, mean, he says it. You're like children to me. He makes it. He puts words on context this week, if not any time else. Sam knows he won't do it. Like, I don't think there's a part of Sam that's like hoping he'll pull the trigger or like daring him. It's like he knows he knows Bobby can't. You don't think that that was like a plea almost? I see where that comes from. There is a part of Sam and I think when we get to the visions, we're going to get into that a little more. And that's kind of my view of Sam this week is very two sided. 
is there's the side of Sam that really seems to want this to be over with. And he thinks that there is no way he's going to come back from this. So if you want to see him die a human, it better be right now. So pull the trigger. But there's also the part of me that I think I don't want to say the cockier side, but the more confident side of Sam knows that Bobby truly loves him and believes in him. And that if this is something Sam really felt was the right thing to do, Bobby would let him go. That's what he's getting at. And then eventually just there's that moment of, okay, this is taking too long. I need to get going, whether that be the addiction speaking or the detox speaking or just a need to hurry things along. There's the grab the gun and hit him with the butt of it. But I truly think what he was trying to get in that moment was either the two sides of Sam this week, the side of him that goes, I know this is wrong, but I have to do it. And the side of him that is, I think, more the addiction side speaking of this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before about how Sam tries to convince himself that what he's doing is right. And I think that we're seeing that this week. So then can we go through the hallucinations together? Because I feel like there's an inconsistency. Okay, I'm listening. Alistair seems the most out of it because I feel like there really isn't anything to Alistair other than just being fear. I'm sort of seeing it as like peeling the layers, right? Like, because I see all of those as fears. They're all his fears in the way that I'm reading this anyway. The first one is an obvious one. He's afraid like of going to hell and living the same thing that Dean lived. From there, which I think, and I think that's the most clear cut and obvious. I don't think there's any real like nuance we're missing in that. I think that's really what it is. And then there's young Sam, who's looking at his future self. And as you said, there's disappointment. But then that disappointment turns to anger when he goes, maybe this is what you were meant to be the whole time. Well, that's the fear. We get to Mary, who he right away goes into the whole, oh, you're here to be disappointed in me. And Mary is like weirdly encouraging of him. And again, as you pointed out, Mary is very much his idealized version of her, because really, what does he have to go off of other than pictures, a few random stories, maybe, and meeting her as a ghost for a few seconds at one time. But yes, there's that that fear aspect of it, of like the fear of disappointing her. But it almost felt more like he was using that hallucination to convince himself this was the right thing to do. The way that I sort of make it fit into the fear side is this idea that like, because when she tells him that she agrees with him, he looks freaking terrified. He's like, oh my God, is this for real? Because I think on some level, he knows that what he, he knows what he's doing is wrong, but he's convincing himself that he's doing it for the, for justice, right? For a just cause to have his mom tell him that that is a just cause, I think is terrifying for him because he's like, oh my God, this, this is real. Like, I think because then it's no longer argue, having to argue against it. Like this is literally the first person who has agreed with him. And he's like, but I'm wrong. He knows he's wrong deep down. I know, I know he knows that. But I think that's also the fun thing with this is it's the only one where he has to fill in the blanks. I mean, his younger self, he lived it. His brother, he knows his brother better than anyone else. He probably knows Dean better than Dean knows Dean. He knows Dean well enough to know what Dean would say. Like, I imagine if Dean were actually in that room until it eventually takes that turn to a little bit darker, 
the, that felt real. Like they even set it up in the episode to make you think it's actually Dean. And it fooled me until they finally revealed it wasn't. But it's just that the only one where he has to kind of fill in the blanks and basically create this character for that moment is the only one who agrees with him, even though deep down he knows he shouldn't. It's the only one where he's able to do that. I completely agree. And that is scary to him. (laughs) I think anyway. I think ultimately they all have fear. My inconsistency was just that Mary weirdly stood out in a sense. That was the thing to me. I also have some very critical thoughts about the way that the writing team tends to write Mary, especially in earlier seasons, because she's just kind of like literally used as a plug here and there, like, and she will be written however they need her to be written. And I just, I don't love it, but I can make it work narratively, right? That's why I think this works narratively because we've talked about it. But I think the fact that she is so weirdly an outlier in this collection in the way that she speaks to him really does feel like a the same way I Sam can reflect on her and make her what he needs her to be. So can the writers. (laughs) Do we want to talk about Dean? The issue I have here with Dean is it's really just his handling of Sam's addiction because really there's no. The addiction side of this for Dean is just sort of how he is handling someone else going through addiction. He's doing it out of love. He really, his ultimate goal is to save his brother and do right by him. At some point, forcibly throwing him in a cell against his will and forcing him to go by your rules isn't the way to do that. Like, I know, I know on paper, drinking demon's blood, probably the wrong thing to be doing. You don't get to make the decision for someone else's life and their choices. There isn't really any evidence of of Dean's direct relationship to addiction. It's more, like you said, uh, how he handles Sam's addiction. Like you've highlighted, before I say anything, I really want to say that Dean is making the choices that he's making out of love for his brother. Like he's really looking for the best way to help him with the very limited tools that he has. What I'm about to say isn't really a judgment on him, just so that we're clear. Choosing to basically lock him up for detox, it's it's forced on Sam. It's not his choice. And he goes as far as saying that he'd rather have Sam die human or to use, you know, a drug analogy, clean or sober, than living as an addict. And in that moment, I really can't help but hear John in those words. And I don't think that it's an accident that Bobby is the one arguing the other side or the harm reduction side, because Bobby is saying that he'd rather have Sam alive and using than dead and sober. We know that Bobby is a father figure to these men. And I just really find it fascinating to see the Bobby John opposition here. And again, I want to be extra clear Dean is doing this and saying this out of love for Sam, which makes the whole argument with Bobby even worse, because how can these two characters who love Sam more than anything have such different visions of how to help him? And I think that this really represents the impossible situation that many families find themselves in when someone struggles with addiction. Putting so many words on the argument that Bobby and uh, that that Bobby and Dean have in regards to how to treat Sam. Because at the end of the day, I feel like Bobby's side is the side that I've been arguing this whole time in my own way. 
wouldn't it be okay to monitor how much blood he's taking in and keeping track of things and letting him use these powers and like rather than chase him off like you brought something to mind about Dean this week that I did not occur until just now we have often made the comparison to Dean's sexuality in the way he sees it as being wrong or different or other or even monstrous in some sakes he survived all these years by, I mean, as we learn now, he puts on the mask, he goes macho, he survives. He's a survivor. Because he was probably forced to against his will, but it made him stronger, and it got him where he is today, and he survived because of it. And so he's seeing that as the only option for Sam as well. I So I think that this is incredibly interesting, okay? Because I have often said in the very early seasons when we really started this podcast, that Sam also has moments of queer coding in the story. And I think that his whole arc about him having something evil inside him is, uh, and, and we're living it right now, you know, this whole demon blood, it's not something you do, it's something you are. This, these are very, very, very violent things to say to an addict, but also to a queer person. I'm thankful that you're making this comparison with Dean because I completely agree that John would have handled Dean, Dean's queerness the same way that he would, that Dean is currently handling Sam's addiction because it's the only thing he knows. Uh, Literally, it's, it's, it's exactly how John would handle it. My way is right. There's no argument. And we, and it's funny because in that same episode where he says, like, if I didn't know you, I would want to hunt you. It's the one where he punches Sam. And we discussed how, like, in that moment, we saw John in Dean. Luckily, Jeffrey Dean Morgan was already on The Walking Dead. And so there were, they couldn't use his image in order to do that. So we don't have that extra pain. But that's probably why they brought in Mary. Because I would personally imagine that they would have that that dialogue said by John would have been incredibly effective. There's a part of me that feels like John wouldn't have fit that mold because I don't think Sam would be worried about disappointing John. But I will say that, especially in the last few episodes where he's been like looking up to him so much and, you know, trying in his own way, in his own misguided way, in my opinion, trying to honor him, as we saw with Adam, I think that the fear of disappointment would be much more present than it would have been in the early seasons. But I I understand what you're saying, though. No, but it's a very valid point. You are right. I feel like, especially looking back at these last few episodes, you're right. Any other signs of addiction this week we want to look at? Now that we've started talking about John, the moment where Vision Mary tells Sam, make my death mean something... It sort of got me thinking about John and his own addiction to re- to avenge her death. Did he get those visions of her telling him to make her death mean something? Ooh. No, but the way, the way the way John the way John was driven and like as we've discussed his lack in skill when actually putting pen to paper versus the fantasized version that the two of them kind of knew. You know, how many failed cases have they had to go back and clean up afterwards, this uh, the series we've discussed. But like we said, it was kind of all this driven towards vengeance thing. You know, his own vision, Mary, I could definitely see it haunting his dreams. How much that is actually 
his memory of her versus him imprinting on her to fuel his rage. <laughs> Revenge is a terrible thing. Let's go to critical time. This episode was written by Sarah Gamble and directed by Robert Singer. Why is it always the ones that put them through so much hell have to be Sarah? Ah, oh, Miss Sarah. I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions for Miss Sarah. <laughs> uh, but I will keep my questions for later. Would you like to tell us a little story? You wake to the sound of thunder outside. The storm's been raging since you got to the hotel. The sound of rain and wind against an old window is usually fairly soothing, but something's just keeping you up today. Maybe a glass of water will help. You walk to the washroom and fill that lame single wrapped cup they give you with a grossly warm water, and you do remember there being an ice machine on your way to your room. The hall looks longer than you remember. You can't recall there being more than a few rooms between you and the elevator. A flash of lightning illuminates the rather dark hall, revealing shapes and forms for a second. Some you can place, but others don't seem to make sense. You get to the machine and get a bag of ice, and you turn around. The hall leading back to your room is dark enough, you can't see your room from there. You head back to your room, the night finally taking its toll on you. You find yourself quite tired, finally. You continue to walk and walk and walk. You feel something on your leg. A chill runs up your spine. You look down at the plastic bag of ice, now completely melted, the condensation dripping along your leg. You look forward. You look behind you. Just hallways and doors. How long have you been walking? How long do you have to go still? And Mary, what thoughts do you have to share with us this week? So this was already a pretty heavy episode, um, so I'm not going to go on forever. But I do want to—I do want to tell you my own little story. It's very short. A few years ago, when I started my master's, I attended a conference about whole person care and addiction. And for those who don't know, the term whole person care is a movement in medicine that basically advocates for healthcare workers to consider the whole person in front of them, not just the patient and their symptoms. The keynote speaker at that conference was Dr. Gabor Mate. For some context, he's a Holocaust survivor. And as you would expect, this colors his worldview entirely. His understanding of addiction is the one that I've used throughout this episode, which is that addiction is the result of someone using a substance or an activity as a way to help them cope with emotional pain. Just as a side note, obviously, you know, because the medical community agrees on very few things, they don't all agree on, on this particular approach. But if you would like to learn a little bit more about Dr. Uh, Mate's understanding, we're going to put a link in the episode description where you can go read a little bit more about that. He's written some absolutely fascinating things that are very approachable for anybody. You don't need to be a doctor or a healthcare worker. Anybody who wants to read a little bit more will be able to do that. I will admit if time permits, I'm definitely going to find some time to try to read that. Uh, seeing him speak was genuinely like one of the highlights of my degree. 
yeah, it, it, it really kind of, whenever I hear his name now or see him pop up on my, on my social media feed, I'm like, oh, Dr. Mate. So yeah. So anyway, it seems like he understands the human side of people in a way that is rarely talked about in medicine. And I genuinely appreciate that. What I'm seeing more and more is like you describe with Dr. Mate here is this approach to the more human side of medicine. It angers me how many times I've heard stories about the medical world that basically like these huge like ball was dropped moments of like just understanding and education and furthering science because something got in someone's way that would have prevented them from making money or, you know, starting a practice. Like it's just it's it became I don't think politicized is the right word, but it became capitalistic. Well, I mean, in a lot of countries, medicine is a capitalist endeavor. I mean, unfortunately, that is very real. And that obviously hinders the work that can be done and the medicine that can be created, which I think what, is what frustrates me. So hearing stories like this or learning of people who are studying and using this approach, just it, it, it gives me hope for humanity in a way. Thank you. That's great. Would you like to go have a look at what our community has to say? I would love that. This week, we have a message from Lucia. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. Where do you see addiction in Supernatural? What is Bobby addicted to? Or to respond to something else we discussed today entirely. You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us that recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Hey everyone, it's Lucia. I'm reaching out because I wanted to offer some additional thoughts to the conversation that was started in the episode Yellow Fever about Dean's vulnerability to the ghost sickness. Um, Now, I know Eric Kripke has already given his feedback, and one of the things that he was trying to explain without spoilers was essentially that the reason that Dean was vulnerable was because during his time in hell, he had tortured souls. So obviously, he was guilty of using fear as a weapon and hurting other innocent people. And I just wanted to say, I think there's a little more to it than that. And so I kind of wanted to um, add that here. So Dean comes to the conclusion that this is why he got the ghost sickness because of kind of the lore that he studied and his own assumptions about himself. Now, when we look at the sheriff who also had the ghost sickness, It was clear that not only had he also hurt someone else who was innocent, used fear as a weapon, um, kind of done all those things that Dean is now being accused of, but he also had very clearly unresolved guilt and fear and feelings about what that had happened and like what that made him as a person. And we really know this because of how his fear manifests in the um, hallucinations that he has, as well as his responses to Sam and Dean's investigation. Um, Clearly, he feels guilty. He's worried about how he's going to be perceived, what that made of him as a person, whether or not he's going to be found out. Like, he genuinely has fear that was already there before the ghost sickness ever occurred that's now just being exacerbated by this uncontrollable panic that he's in. And I think the same is true for Dean. 
I think that the reason he is so vulnerable to the ghost sickness isn't just because of what he's done, but because of the fear and guilt that already existed within him because of what he had done. So, and I think that it really speaks to everything that occurs for him going forward in season four and season five. When we take a look at Dean, obviously he's already aware that during his time in hell, this was something that he did. He knows that he broke. And I think not only does he feel guilty about it, but I think he genuinely believes that if something happens to him and he dies or when he dies, he is destined to go back to hell. I don't think he has hope for what is going to happen to him. And I think that knowing what he's already done and how he broke before gives him the belief that he's destined to become that version of himself again. And I think that terrifies him. And I think that this is really demonstrated in the episode on the head of a pin when he's asked to torture Alistair because it's obvious that he's devastated by what the angels are requesting of him, but he's also resigned to it. And he's very aware of what that is going to be like do to him. He's begging Castiel, like, please don't make me do this. You're not going to like what this makes me. And Castiel is telling him, like, if I had any other option, I wouldn't ask this of you. Because Castiel also knows what, not just what this made him, but like what it's done to Dean and how it's affected him. And I think he genuinely doesn't want to put Dean in that position and hurt him further. But there's also this resignation that he's expressing. Like, and I think it is that while he didn't expect to be asked to do this by angels or have to deal with Alistair again or necessarily have to do any of this, like while he was living, I think it's evidence that there was always an expectation that he carried with him that this version of himself was inevitable and that he was going to eventually become this person again. And I think it also really speaks to kind of how he deals with things in the future. He knows that under extreme duress and trauma, he is not as strong as he wants to be. He's not as strong as, as he says to Castiel, as either of their fathers want him to be. And I think that he genuinely believes that he is not capable of holding out, that under extreme stress, he will break. Um, so anyways, it's just something that really stood out to me. And I think that that emotional component is incredibly important, both for why he is vulnerable and again, through the future seasons. I hope that kind of makes sense. Um, and I'm really enjoying the show and excited to kind of get more feedback from you guys and what you think of everything that's going on. I hope you keep it up. Thanks, guys. Wow. It makes so much more sense when it's read that way. A disease that has to do with fear would, I mean, ghost disease still withstanding, that it would tie to something in fear. Like, yes, they used fear, but like, even saying used fear, like in the torture aspect, like I get it, but it feels like, I mean, the torture is way worse than just using fear. It's literally torture. Like, yes, it's part of, but like tying it to 
their fear of what they were, what they can, what they have done, what they can become, what their future holds. It makes more sense to me. Like, I genuinely feel like, yes, Kripke gave his reasoning. And yes, with episodes to come, it was made more clear why it worked the way it did. And the whole being a dick thing was kind of a throwaway. This actually makes so much more sense. And it really is eye opening about Dean because like, I feel like deep down, like nothing you said came as a like revelation in regards to Dean, but it was just putting it all in the spotlight for a moment versus letting it be passive knowledge. There's really like, it's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I completely agree. Lucia, thank you so much for sending this to us. This was, um, this was a really interesting reframing. It's sort of, begs the question for me, as a person, do you have to be afraid in order to use fear as a weapon? And that's sort of bringing me back to after school special with the Dirk and Dean parallels. So I I feel like this is kind of like opening up a whole well <laughs> of of like potential analysis here. So thank you so, so much for, for bringing this up. And I, I'm just going to mention it just because I also went through an incredibly stressful situation a couple of days ago and like breaking under extreme st- stress. Like I, I understand that Dean is seeing it as a sign of weakness, probably because that's what John told him. It's not a sign of weakness. And I, I look forward to the day that Dean is able to see that because I think that that is probably like one of the biggest leaps and bounds that he can make in terms of growth in my opinion yeah thank you for an amazing voicemail really with that shall we go reflect on this episode a bit more let's i really felt a connection to bobby this episode and i love bobby i'm a sucker for him he's he is easily my favorite character on the show right now as much as i like many people have an affinity for Cass. bobby really gets me in a very personal place Seeing him have to, I say fight, but just kind of like come to like verbal blows with Dean in regards to the way they're dealing with Sam, I thought was so brave. Like in that situation to look at someone who is hurting so much and is in such a vulnerable state, but know that as much as you don't want to have to put something else on their plate, as much as you don't want to increase the burden on them that you have a duty as someone who cares for them to be honest and show them all the different ways of looking at a situation. So my call to action is just to be more like Bobby and be brave, you know, speak my truth when I have to don't, you know, dumb things down for people or try to like soften the blow when it needs to be said a certain way. Like sometimes being direct is the right thing to do and I don't do it enough. So that's my call to action. That's a really good one. It's a tough one, but it's a good one. And Mary, what would you have this week? Well, I I felt a lot for Sam, actually, in this episode, because this entire season we've talked a lot, a lot, about the ways that Dean is hurting and how he was trying to, like, numb that emotional pain or, as we've specifically discussed, to cope with it. We literally had an entire episode about it. And this whole time... Sam was also suffering and we didn't really notice it. And he was trying to cope with like this immense pain that's making him feel like he wants to die. 
and we need, we like never even talked about it. So this episode really reminded me that we never know what someone is carrying with them. And I feel called to be gentle with others, even when I have little patience or that I'm in pain myself. And that's really hard sometimes. Oh, it can be for sure. So again, good for you to realize that and put words on it. So it's, it's tough. It's tough. It's easy to love somebody, but it's really hard to make someone you love see the truth sometimes. Oh, I honestly, I feel like this episode is just so sad in so many ways. Oh my God, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, of course. Because it's actually one of those allegories that I think they got, they represented relatively well. Uh, It's very on the nose and like, you know exactly what this is about, but like they do it, they do it in a way that really represents like, what do you do when you're faced with someone who clearly has an addiction problem and who, who, who isn't able to, to recognize that they do. What do you do? There's no easy way. There's no easy way to deal with it. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigourou and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to our bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Lucia for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. When the... When the levy? When the levy? I've always read it as levy. Oh, crap. All right. Hold on. All right. Uh, Google. Just... Google. <laughs> <laughs>